You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long and we will reach that canopy again. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, today, we're going to be having a look at what's going on in terms of the government's response to what could be described as an education crisis in this country. After all, we've had uh, the exam results, which both in terms of A-levels and GCSEs doesn't seem to have inspired a great deal of confidence. And now the great plan is, of course, to get uh, schools back open and running with pupils there. And Boris Johnson has, in fact, issued a special plea to get parents to send their children back to school when they reopen. The Prime Minister says the chance of catching the virus in schools is very small and that children risk greater harm by staying away when schools reopen in England and Wales next week. And this echoes the stance of England's Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty. The chances of children being uh, catching COVID and then getting long-term serious problems as a result of it solely due, due to going to school are incredibly small. They're not zero, but they're incredibly small. But Kevin Courtney of the National Education Union wants a plan plan in place for the teachers. We also think the government needs to be working on employing more staff so that if teachers are ha- or other staff in schools are having to self-isolate, then we need replacements for them. And we'll be hearing more from the National Education Union later in the programme. But all this comes as Boris Johnson is reasserting his grip over education messaging, having been criticised quite widely for going on holiday during the exam result crisis. So is the government capable of getting schools back up and running, given, as I said, what happened during the exam season? Well, joining us now is Andrew Bridgen, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Andrew, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much for being with us once again. Let me begin by asking you, whether you uh, will be telling perhaps the schools in your constituency that, yes, this is the moment to go back and that they can be confident the government has everything in place to help them? Of course. Um, It's absolutely crucial that we get our schools open again, and and for many reasons. I mean, children have spent uh, a long time now missing out on their education. Uh, We risk actually damaging the life prospects of of all of our children if we don't go back on the 1st of September or um, or that week. Um, 
And also, uh, on an economic front, it's very difficult for parents with school-aged children to uh, be able to go back to work themselves if their children are not in school as normal, especially when you've got the support networks of perhaps grandparents um, still being isolated. Um, so they're not being available to help out. So it is absolutely crucial that the schools go back and it goes back successfully. And, and the reassurance is that, um, as uh, Professor Whitty said, that the chances of uh, them contracting the, the virus in any meaningful way are extremely low, thank, thank goodness. But what the government's got to do is actually give the parents confidence. But so they'll be very clear that they'll have seen that during the lockdown, schools actually weren't shut. They were available for critical workers. And all the figures were that so that should have been about a third of all people should have been in school throughout the lockdown. But what we know is, is that that figure was probably only 2 or 3%. And that was, I think, the, the messaging from the government about how important it was to lock down um, deterred parents from sending their children, although they were eligible still to be at school. Um, we've got to overcome uh, that confidence gap now uh, yeah. to get children back to school. Well, let me let me pick up on the confidence point, Andrew, because I mean there will be people, many of them normally uh, government supporters, who'll be saying, "Hang on, what's happened over the last few weeks? What happened with the GCSE? What happened with A levels?" Doesn't give people a great deal of confidence in the way government is handling education, specifically Gavin Williams and the education sector himself. Doesn't seem to have had a grip. A lot of people feel that, and that's understandable, isn't it? I think the government really was, and Gavin Williamson and the Department of Education, they, they were really on a bit of a hiding for nothing over the, the results of the A-levels and the GCSEs because we've all done those exams. We know that there are people who feel aggrieved when you sat the exam about the, the results. Um, so there were always going to be uh, people who felt aggrieved over whatever system uh, was adopted for something that's completely imperfect, i.e. because we didn't have the exams. Could it have been handled better? Yes, I think it could have been. I think it's it's ludicrous that we didn't agree between Westminster and, uh, and Edinburgh a system that was consistent across the whole of the UK for how we were going to award grades for people who didn't sit exams. Because ultimately... All of our young people, whether they're in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland or uh, in England, they're all competing in the same marketplace for the same jobs and the same university places. And so they should have had a consistent marking uh, or awarding of grade system that covered the whole of the UK. And the moment that Scotland decided to go for uh, predicted grades from uh, teacher assessments, um, there was no alternative but for England and Wales to go the same way because... Otherwise, that would have completely disadvantaged um, our young people. So why didn't the Education Secretary and the government do that? Because that's what struck people as so odd. This wasn't a crisis you couldn't see coming. It was one that was plainly there on the horizon. Yes, and, um, and it was always going to be contentious, whatever system you've got. And it was, it's, it's always going to be accused of being unfair because undoubtedly, because it's so imperfect, because people didn't sit the exams, it will be unfair. But at least it should have been consistent across the whole of the UK. I think we should have spoken to the uh, SNP government in Scotland 
and agreed a transparent and open system that was consistent across the whole of the UK. I think okay, that was but... a big failing. And the moment, and the moment that uh, the, the, the Scots decided to go for uh, teacher assessments only, um, that made uh, the position of the government in England and Wales for our pupils, completely untenable. Right, so therefore, I mean, as you said, you described yourself as a ludicrous uh, failure on that part. Um, then why should people think that coordinating, getting teachers into places I where they feel safe... I think I the ludicrous failure. Well, you did say it was ludicrous, and I think that's important was, because was, people will say that has was, to be counted it was, as a failure. It would, it, would be, it would be ludicrous not to have a consistent system across the whole of the UK when, when there's one UK jobs market. It, despite what the SNP say about it there, their aspirations for independence. The UK jobs market and the UK in, uh, uh, university applications market is, is one market, and you can't have um, Scottish pupils being awarded uh, yeah. arbitrarily higher grades than, than pupils in England yeah. and Wales. Well, I think that that's going to be in any way fair. No, but let's move away from the from from the coordination between England and Scotland, which, as you said, wasn't handled well on either side, uh, and say, given that poor handling, isn't it even more of an ask to have good handling of getting teachers and pupils into a safe space so that they can start schooling as they should on September the first or around then? Well, the teachers, the teachers are uh, critical workers. I mean, they're, they're, they're employed by the state to educate the next generation. Their jobs are protected. They've been looked after during the lockdown. Um, they have actually been operating. The, the schools have been operating. And, and the schools have known this is coming for months and months and months. Um, and I would presume, and I'm having spoken to some of the head teachers in my constituency of northwest Leicestershire, that they've got systems in place to minimise the risk of transmission of the, uh, of the, the virus by social distancing. But, but ultimately, they are, they are professionals employed by the state rather like doctors and nurses and all the, uh, the people who work for the local council who've carried on with their jobs, their essential work during the lockdown. And, you know, they need to be treated as such. And they need to have the respect that they've got to go back to work for the national good, just like the, all those other essential workers worked through the lockdown. Even people in the private sector who worked in the food industry, we needed food that had to be provided. They have had to minimise the risk. But there's, there, is no, there is no situation where there's no risk in, the, in, in, in this scenario we find ourselves in. There's no way that the government can ever guarantee that uh, no-one's going to get the virus. Um, but but can, we guarantee, can we guarantee the government will do or coordinate what's necessary at least to keep everybody safe? I mean, what faith should we have in that? But there are no guarantees. There are, there are no guarantees. No-one can give that guarantee... You know, you've got people who've worked in food factories who unfortunately have contracted the virus, but the alternative was we would have run out of food in this country. That, that is, is a greater danger to a greater number. Unfortunately, that's the decision that the government has, has to make. Ultimately, if we don't get pupils back to school, uh, if you wait until it's 100% safe um, and, and the virus is, is, is not here, that could be years. That would be so detrimental to the lives of those, a whole generation of, of young people how ludicrous would it have been to say, well, the doctors and nurses, they've got to be safe, so we're going to shut uh, the hospitals down during the COVID crisis. That's not going to That didn't happen. Um, and, and no one suggested that that would be uh, a sensible uh, solution. Andrew, briefly and, and finally, is, is Gavin Williamson the man to oversee this, given everything that's happened? Do you have confidence in him, you personally? Well, he's, he's clearly going to be under a lot of pressure to ensure that this functions. Um, and 
I guess if you're from a business point of view, if you've got a, a manager who's uh, under pressure, um, you know, he's he's under huge pressure to make this as smooth as possible. But um, given the size of the education estate, um, it is inconceivable there won't be a few problems. But it's about minimising those. I mean, this is a is a huge beast. Uh, yeah. So he should stay. Uh, for the moment, Gavin should stay in. Gavin should stay in place briefly. Even if the well, apparently he did offer his resignation, as did Mick Gibbs, the school secretary. Yeah. Um, and Mick Gibbs has been in position, I think, for 13 years as the school yeah. minister. Um, it would be ludicrous, uh, faced with the, with the challenge of reopening schools and, uh, in the next week or so, to to remove uh, right. the senior management of the Andrew will we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us, Andrew Bridgen, there, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a quick look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Now, the Home Secretary says the government will continue to crack down on those who show a, quote, blatant disregard for safety by organising unlawful gatherings. Those who plan illegal raves in England could be fined up to £10,000 from Friday. That follows a huge rise in unlicensed music events following the easing of lockdown restrictions. The former Metropolitan Police Detective Chief Inspector Peter Kirkham says the penalties don't go far enough. People know that there are maximum fines for various things, but they also think it's not going to happen to me. What we really need is sufficient police officers so that anybody holding an event like this knows that they are going to get caught. Now, back to the mayoral elections in London. Remember them? Well, the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London says firms should conduct random tests on their employees. Sean Bailey has called for every business in the capital with more than 250 employees to sign up to a drug testing charter, routinely checking workers for illegal substance use, with the results being made public. Bailey says this would help to identify middle-class cocaine users who are funding, he says, organised crime by purchasing drugs. And finally, back to uh, a subject we've covered quite extensively here on the programme, which is, of course, the anti-Semitism issue in the Labour Party. Now, this morning, Twitter has been in a bit of a meltdown over a quote from a former close aide of Jeremy Corbyn. He's the trade unionist Andrew Murray. And the quote comes from a new book about Labour by Gabriel Pogrand and Patrick Maguire. Now, this is what they quote Andrew Murray saying talking about 
Jeremy Corbyn. He is very empathetic, Jeremy, but he is empathetic with the poor, the disadvantaged, the migrant and the marginalised. Happily, that is not the Jewish community in Britain today. He would have massive empathy with the Jewish community in Britain in the 1930s, and he would have been there at Cable Street, but there's no question. But of course, the Jewish community today is relatively prosperous. As you can imagine, that has set a lot of people commenting about the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and the perspective that is held in some parts of the party still, it seems, on that issue. Anyway, getting back to our main story today, Boris Johnson's made a plea to parents to send their children back to school when the schools reopen in England next week. The Prime Minister says the chance of catching the virus in schools is, quote, very small, and children risk greater harm by staying away. But not everyone agrees with that stance, as some unions say teachers need more guidance on safety. Well, I'm joined now, I'm very pleased to say, by Jerry Glazier of the National Executive at the National Education Union. Jerry, welcome to the programme. Let me ask you first, do you think schools are ready to go back now? Are your members ready for that? Largely, we think they are, Roger. Schools have worked very hard um, over the last uh, period, particularly also during the summer holidays, to ensure that schools are COVID secure. Uh, They've put in place a lot of measures to give assurance to the students, the staff and the parents. Um, However, we are concerned as a union about plans the government have. They seem to have one plan only, that all schools will open next week, but they haven't got any clear plans about what happens if there are local spikes, or if, I hope it doesn't happen, but if it did happen, there was a a second wave of the virus at the end of uh, the autumn or into the beginning of uh, next year. So what we're calling upon the government is to have some very clear plans what to do if there is a re-emergence of any significance in that in the virus. So let's break this down. Right now you're saying that if schools return next week, as, as is the case in England and Wales, your members feel that this is something, they're, they're willing to take whatever risks there might be, and there should be, I guess, some risks uh, from obviously mixing in, in, in greater communities than before. They're prepared for the risks there might be to their health as a result, but they're concerned about what might come further down the line. Yes, I think what we've been saying and what our members are telling us, they just need to be confident that the schools have got in place those COVID secure measures. And that's why we assisted schools with our checklist uh, before the summer holidays. And it's very clear now that um, younger children don't seem to uh, spread the virus as much and maybe suffer from it. They Certainly children over 12 seem to be just equally spreaders as adults. But as you are aware, Roger, the, you know, the component parts of the school are the kids and the staff, the teaching, the support staff, the administrative staff. And what we are very clear about is that those schools must have rigidly applied COVID secure measures for social distancing with the staff to ensure that there isn't a spread amongst the staff and by the staff into the community. So if there is, let's say, and, and hopefully there won't be, but if there is an outbreak, say, in, in a school, I don't know, in the Midlands or somewhere, what you would want to see is a plan set out by the Department for Education that says, right, this particular school will close temporarily, something like that, or that schools in an area will close. You need to see that set out in writing. We need to understand what the tolerance levels are, and we need to understand what uh, can be put in place to support schools in that situation. It might require the partial closing of schools, it might require the complete closing of schools, but what we are concerned about is ensuring that there is still education provision for the children in those schools if that happens. We've talked quite a lot about blended learning, a combination of learning from school and at home. 
But what we are concerned is that schools need the resources to do that. They may need more spaces to do that blended learning if, it, if it's necessary. And we're still very concerned about what we think is about 700 kids who don't have proper access to the internet um, or, or laptops to work from. Um, just before, you know, in, in the summer term, the government identified up to 200,000 units. They were very late delivered, and in many cases they didn't arrive in schools for the most disadvantaged children until right at the end of the term, uh, last summer term. So we need to have that all sorted out. Obviously, the locality issue is going to be crucial now. We know much more about infections in the locality. Uh, Local public health people know where the infections are right down to street level. So it's having those plans uh, probably necessarily locally implemented, but supported by national government. Jerry, let me ask you a question I think that a lot of uh, friends of mine who are teachers are talking about, and they're saying when schools return uh, next week, probably, um, they're going to be dealing with a lot of kids who have spent months, many months, uh, without any real education. I mean, as you say, many of them haven't been learning online, perhaps as they should have been, but also just the sheer control of a day when they get up in the morning, what they do with themselves. I mean, it's going to be very hard to get back into that kind of routine. Incredibly challenging for your members, even just to keep control. Well, I think you're right. I think, you know, with many kids not being in school for five whole months, then uh, simulating back into the school regimes, into a different regime from the one which they left, will have its challenges, and schools need to feel their way through that carefully uh, to make it as a positive experience as possible. So, so that is recognised, uh, and schools, you know, need to be able to do that in a way which is measured and effective, because we do need to get the kids back into the learning mode and support their education. And we're very conscious about a large number of, of kids who are living in high-rise accommodation um, without gardens, um, and we're concerned about what appears to be emerging mental health issues. They already were a problem before the lockdown, and it seems to have got worse, and we need to have the resources and education to support those kids in particular. But it's not just, I guess, um, potential discipline problems, which I'm sure will be there, but also the education gap. I mean, you've, you've, you've hinted at this, but you've got a situation which a lot of kids have had uh, almost nothing. Some kids have had quite a lot. And how are they going to make that up during the ongoing school years? Many people say, well, teachers, your members need to actually uh, simply do more, put in overtime as a way of somehow trying to make up that gap, perhaps, you know, schooling outside normal hours. Are these kind of things acceptable? Well, I, I think putting in overtime would probably be counterproductive because you've got to engage with the, with the students in a, in a positive way. I think there's a, a lot of questions about the nature of the curriculum, how that curriculum is delivered, uh, and certainly the examination systems uh, are complex as well in terms of what's going to happen over the next year. So schools are going to have to be imaginative, they're going to have to be innovative, but they need, may need some more resources to do it effectively, and that's something which the government seems to have failed to want to recognise, that maybe schools do need support at all sorts of levels, but actually the capacity to deliver effectively from an educational perspective may require some more resources for the school. Well, that's going to be difficult because obviously there are limited budgets, and at the moment a fair chunk of the budgets, I suspect, is going to be used on the extra measures necessary to keep schools safe. You kind of can't do both at the same time. Yeah, but I think we've got to recognise that there may be challenges with the adults, the staff of the school, if they become ill or if they get flu or whatever, in terms of maintaining the, the, the more rigid regime in protection measures. So schools may have to have more resources to employ additional staff 
to counteract some of these negative impacts on them. And that's what we're calling on the government to do in, in respect of its plan B, recognise that and ensure that schools have the capacity, wherever possible, in difficult circumstances, to maintain education provision for the children. Otherwise, we will have some more difficulties going forward. Well, what about leadership on all this? Because the focus has been on the government, particularly on Gavin Williamson, uh, as heading up the education department. Do you have faith in him? Do you have confidence in him? Do your members? Well, I think people have, have, have had their confidence dented, but I think the confidence is dented in the whole governmental approach, and that's where the problem lies. It's the policy of the government, not necessarily the individuals that are, that are at fault here. So, so you're not calling um, for him to go? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be pleased if Gavin Williamson stepped down? Well, perhaps the National Education Union would like to see a different approach to education, which, which would, would not be resolved by Gavin Williamson going. So it's effectively a yes, isn't it? Well, it's up to the Prime Minister to determine who is, who is the Secretary of State. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.